Have you ever been on a trip that went horribly wrong? Perhaps the airline lost your luggage, or maybe a hurricane rolled in on your beach vacation, or did you get sick by food poisoning? I've done that. Whatever it was, it was so significant and so unexpected that you began to second-guess why you even went on that particular trip at all. About 10 years ago, I got to travel to Colombia for the first time. I was excited. It was my first trip to South America. I was also a little apprehensive. For one, it was, the, it was the first time I'd been to a country with a notable security concern. When I landed in Bogota, the first thing I noticed were guard shacks with armed military lining each side of the runway. At first, I was intrigued. I'm looking out the window of the plane, snapping pictures, and musing to myself, you're not in Kansas anymore. From Bogota, I flew up to a town in the mountains of northern Colombia. When we landed, we got into buses to go to our hotels, and it became readily apparent that life over the next week or so was going to be radically different. For one, all of our buses had a police presence, both on board with us as well as escorting us to our destinations. Our hotel had police guarding it day and night, and we were cautioned very sternly to not ever leave the hotel by ourselves without a policeman by our side. I accidentally tested this by trying to walk across a small street to the convenience store. Um, it was literally meters away. The policeman guarding the front, he asked me to wait. He went and got another policeman to take his post, and then he walked with me across the small street so that I could buy a Coke. At that point, I was starting to wonder why I was even there. That feeling only grew. <laughs> My first game of the tournament uh, was the opening ceremonies game. And that was the next night. And the stadium was packed with people. Thousands of spectators were there. It was also entirely surrounded by police and military. They were everywhere. They were guarding the entrances and the exits. They were guarding every aisle in the stands. They were ringing the entire upper bowl of the stadium. They were guarding the dressing rooms and our referee room. Now, wherever you could see, you could see police in your view. You, you think that would make me feel more safe but instead I started to experience some significant anxiety. I don't usually get all that nervous before games, but seeing all those police, seeing them in the, in the stands, scanning the crowd, I think was my undoing. Um, and so that brought home that nagging question, why am I here? And minutes before I had to be out in the rink, my heart began to race, my breathing became labored, and I began to panic from having the beginnings of a panic attack. And, and so I locked myself in the bathroom. You know, sheer will isn't all that helpful in these situations. As I was willing myself to calm down, willing myself to breathe normally, it was clearly evident that wasn't going to be enough. And so I prayed to God for help. Clearly, this place I was in was filled with some sort of danger. And I was the only person I knew not handling that very well at the moment. Back then, the Revolutionary Armed Forces, or FARC, were a guerrilla group that had been in armed conflict with the Colombian government for over 40 years. These rebels were military-esque, and they used terrorism and extortion to further their cause. Their primary source of funding was through kidnappings and ransoms. And you guessed it, their primary area of operation was the Mountaineer region that I was now refing a hockey game. They were the notable security concerns. Now, I can tell you that despite this unexpected and clearly inauspicious start, 
My game that night went really well. My week went well. I had fun. I even called penalties in the home Colombian team and lived to tell the tale. To think at one point that was my biggest concern. Sometime later, however, I learned that the threat we faced was far more real than we could have ever imagined. I won't get into that today, but suffice it to say that my anxiety was not without cause. And yet I'm grateful that God had quickly brought peace to my chaos. Because of him, I was able to go out and enjoy what I went there to do. Now, my guess is that only some of you have wandered into guerrilla territory. But I'm also willing to bet that most of us have faced situations of chaos or overwhelmness. Situations where we've searched for peace and found it fleeting. In those times, the choices most often before us are the empty promises offered by the world. In my case, I was looking at the wrong mountain. I was looking into the danger and not looking specifically at God, at least not initially. So as we explore Psalm 121 today, I'm hoping that we'll see this psalm as a powerful encouragement to look to God first. Psalm 121 is part of the fifth book of the Psalter. It's a processional song or a song of ascent, one of 15 psalms from 120 to 134 which bear this description. It's also appropriately known as the Traveler's Psalm. You see, just as you or I might create a playlist on Spotify for a road trip, these songs of ascent were generally thought to be sung by Jewish pilgrims as they hiked up the hills in Judea. As they went to Jerusalem and the temple to where they were headed, was 750 meters above sea level. So as they went up to the city, as they, as they went up to the city for worship and festivals, and as they ascended to the house of God, as Dave helped us to see a few weeks ago, they would sing these songs to encourage and cheer each other on. Yet interestingly, even though this group of psalms bear this description, not all of them are thought to be directly related to ascending to Jerusalem. Indeed, many scholars believe that Psalm 121 is actually the opposite. It's a farewell blessing, a benediction, given to pilgrims as they departed the temple and headed for that equally hazardous journey home. Indeed, just as Jesus told in Luke 10 of a certain man who walked from Jerusalem down to Jericho and encountered a robber, danger lay on those mountain roads. And so our pilgrim is looking for some sort of assurance that God's guidance, protection, and blessing go with him. This is the lens to which we today will look at this psalm. And I think there are many parallels for us in our lives as we journey through life, as we journey toward God. My hope is that we will come to see this psalm as an assurance that God's promise of care goes with us. It is in him that we can have peace. And that's our big idea today. God's watchful care brings peace. Indeed, the Israelites needed peace for that hazardous journey home. They knew anxiety and they knew insecurity. And they knew they faced danger in those mountains. The hills before them were treacherous, not only with the physical terrain, but with the presence of animals and bandits and robbers. One slip of the foot, one wrong turn could spell disaster. But aside from those physical challenges, those hills were also filled with spiritual challenges. You may recall many times in the Old Testament that refers to the high places, places filled with shrines and altars to false gods. Idol worship was rampant. And these mountains were filled with spells, enchantments, medicines, and, of course, sacrifices to the Canaanite god Baal. 
Hence, our psalmist looks at the mountains between him and home and sees nothing but threat. He is vulnerable. And reflexively, he asks the question, if something happens, from where will help come? It's this question of help's direction that's crucial. Fortunately, our psalmist doesn't leave us guessing as to his choice. Remember, he's just visited the temple. He's just witnessed the majesty and glory of the Lord. And so Psalm 121 begins not merely with a question, but with his confident expression of trust. Verse 1 says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. For our psalmist, help indeed comes from the Lord. God, or Yahweh, or Lord in all caps, is his helper. Indeed, five times in this short psalm, God's personal name, the tetragrammaton YHWH, or Yahweh, is used. As a result, in the pilgrim's eyes, God is not merely the God who made heaven and earth, but his God who made heaven and earth, his helper. In the Hebrew, the word is ezer, to help, and ezri, his helper, his divine protection. This clearly holds more meaning. This idea of personal and comprehensive help is reinforced in Psalm 146, verses 5 and 6. They say, Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. Indeed, Yahweh, the God of Jacob, is the creator and sustainer of all creation, the one who holds the entire universe in his hands. He has unlimited power. He shaped every hill. He shaped every curve and every cliff. And he offers his personal, powerful, wise, and immeasurable help to all who ask. Who better to help our psalmist navigate his journey? Now you and I also live in the hands of God. The Lord, who is sovereign over all realms, is our helper, our God, for whom no detail of our lives goes unseen. So when trials and difficulties strike, we too have a choice to make. We can look to the other hills, the other things in which we put our hope, the places where we find our security, in what or in whom we look to for comfort, or how we try to ease our pain. Or we can look to the God who made the entire universe, surrendering ourselves to his will and fully trusting and depending on his power. Our choice in help's direction matters. Psalm 97.5 tells us that the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. God's glory and power are more tangible than any hill that can come before us. When we place our trust in God, we can be confident that he alone is our rest and our help. He goes before us and with us, and we are never out of his sight. We can cry out, as in Psalm 70, verse 5, You are my help and my deliverer. Oh, Lord, do not delay. So while this first strophe speaks of our having confidence in God's divine protection, we are also given assurance of God's watchful care. God is our protector. In the Hebrew, the word shamar, which means to guard or to keep, or in the NIV, the translation is to watch, appears six times in the remaining six verses. 
Three times is a participle, indicating current action. The Lord keeps or watches. And three times in the imperfect tense, indicating an incomplete and future action. The Lord will keep and will watch over you. In verse 3, another crucial thing to notice is in this psalm is the turn in the psalm's use of pronouns. We've moved from the psalmist's first-person confession of trust, my help comes from the Lord, to second-person assurance, your help comes from the Lord. Now, who among us doesn't want to be assured? We all look for assurance in times of trouble and doubt. In this case, scholars believe that we're now in a dialogue between the priest at the temple and the psalmist. The priest is assuring him that God's blessing goes with him. Such a confirmatory message in verses 3 to 8, especially with the repeated use of those words, keep and keeper, watch, watches, is thought to be an extended version of the Aaronic blessing from Numbers 6.24, something to which the priest would have just pronounced to end worship at the temple. However, unlike this priestly blessing, Psalm 121 does not simply express powerful wishes evoking divine blessing. Instead, it elicits a promise of such a blessing. It begins with the promise of protection. Verse 3 and 4 tell us, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. These verses reinforce that God is and will ever be a constant presence in our lives. He is our shomer, our guard, our protector, the one who keeps or watches. And unlike human guards, or the pagan god Baal for that matter, our god will never fall asleep on the job, like a vigilant shepherd is always alert. Last year, literally weeks before the world changed with the pandemic, I spent a few days in Cairo, Egypt. One morning, we flew in on an unmarked plane, and if that's not fascinating enough for you, we soon found ourselves transferring from one bus to another on the side of a major freeway. The difference in our new mode of transportation, however, was not merely the size of the bus, but who joined our group. Our new addition was a burly security guard, a fact made clearly evident by the large bulge beneath his suit jacket. Now, I don't recall ever feeling unsafe in Cairo, yet it was interesting to me that this part of our journey required the presence of someone packing heat. This seems to be a common theme in my trips, doesn't it? If I were you, I might rethink traveling with me. The point is, though, that we're all exposed to dangers in life, unknown, unseen, and sometimes we need a guard to look out for us. My security guards in Colombia and Cairo were helpful, but indeed they could have been looking the wrong way when disaster struck. They could have fallen asleep. So who better to watch over me than my personal security guard, my chômeur? in whom nothing happens to which he is not aware. To underscore this vigilant and watchful care of Yahweh, the psalmist gives us two helpful images. The first is in verse 4. God will neither slumber nor sleep. Unlike the Canaanite god Baal, who was thought to sleep in the summer, Israel's God never sleeps. This is not only a statement of fact, but a bit of a jab. Let's look at 1 Kings 18, where Elijah faced the 450 prophets of Baal in a showdown at Mount Carmel. You may recall that each party called on their god to set a sacrifice ablaze, and the winner would be declared the god everyone would follow. From morning until noon, the prophets called desperately on the name of Baal to light the fire of their altar. 
They yelled and danced and yelled some more. Yet not surprisingly, there was no response. And so in verse 27, Elijah ridicules them. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. Unlike false gods or humans for that matter, the God of Israel will never be looking the wrong way. He'll never be caught napping when we need him the most. We don't have to scream and shout to get his attention. He already knows everything that has ever happened and everything that will happen to us. And so like a vigilant shepherd, he's always watching, always alert to every detail. This metaphor answers a very important question for us, and it also refutes an insidious lie. This assurance tells us that we don't have to perform to get God's attention. We don't have to get him to put down his phone or stop working or whatever to see us. Have you ever prayed to God, used your name? Something like, dear God, it's me, T. Like he's not already intimately aware of who's speaking. It seems silly, doesn't it? Like he's not intimately pleased to hear from you. Like he's not already looking down, smiling. Yes, my child, I'm here. These verses not only remind us that God is always with us, but they remind us that we are immeasurably dear to him. We are his. And despite the things that may be happening around us or to us, these things are happening not because God has checked out. He hasn't lost interest or left his guard post. He hasn't fallen asleep. Instead, Isaiah 40:28 tells us, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. And Deuteronomy 31:8 emphasizes God's presence. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave or forsake you. So while we don't always know why God has allowed something to happen, it's not because he's abandoned us. He hasn't left his post and gone off to attend to someone more deserving of his attention. This idea intensifies in verse 5. Verse 5 says, The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. This idea that God is your shade, your shadow, means that he's as close to you right now as your shadow is. Think about that. He's intimately stuck to you. Wherever you go, your shadow goes with you every step of the way. And in those very same steps, the God of all creation goes with you as well. He's with you when you succeed. He's with you when you fail. He's with you when your faith is great. And he's with you when you're in times of crushing doubt. God's attention does not wax or wane based on what you're doing or what you're feeling. Instead, he's always with you as your shadow is always with you gets even better. Lee Eklov uses a great analogy. He tells us that God is not merely our shadow, but his very shadow is our sunscreen. He's like SPF infinity. So, so close is the Lord to you and I that his shadow protects us from all harm. Psalm 91.1 reinforces this idea. It tells us that whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And David in Psalm 63, 7 says, Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. God is always beside us, closer than we know, and protecting us from all harm. 
Yet this still does not guarantee us a trouble-free life. Indeed, Jesus in John 16, even said that in this world we will have trouble. But no matter what pain may befall us, evil will never overcome us. We may walk in that dark valley, but our God walks with us. And no matter what may hurt us, our God can use that for good. Such promises, however, only come to those with a trusting heart. In its poetic climax, this psalm shifts to the future. And in verses 6, 7, and 8, we see a blessing and a promise. Verse 6 then, The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. In these verses, we are reminded that God is also our preserver. He will keep us from all evil. Notice the change to the imperfect tense here. God, who has been keeping and watching us all along, now will watch and will keep us for the rest of our lives. This is an ongoing and future commitment and promise. The New Testament can help us to see this promise even more clearly. John 3.16, for instance, proclaims, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Under God's watchful care, not sickness, not heartache, not despair, not even death can harm us. Indeed, God cared so deeply for us, he gave us Jesus to protect us from death itself. And since God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how then will he not also graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32 The promises of Psalm 121 find their fullest expression in the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our protection for life's difficult journey, total and eternal protection, both now and forevermore, come to us in the person and promises of Jesus. For instance, Jesus is our good shepherd who loves us deeply and who willingly laid down his life for his sheep. To keep us safe forever, Jesus died for us. Yet, he knew that his death on the cross was, from the beginning, more about life than death. Commentator Edward Clink shares that this is one reason why Jesus speaks of his shepherding so strongly in the Gospels. He was fulfilling what God promised through the prophets in Ezekiel 34, 22. I will save my flock. And this salvation is made possible only at the cross. Jesus is also our guardian who protects us. Only Jesus had both the power to lay down his life for his sheep and the power to take that life back up again. On that very first Easter Sunday, three days after his brutal crucifixion, Jesus rose from that grave. He conquered evil and death, and in doing so, kept his sheep, us, safe. And because no one can snatch us from his hand, we can be assured that in all our earthly journeys, Jesus is with us. He suffered that he might bring us to God. And because of his life, death, and resurrection, he also gives us his peace. And finally, Jesus is our preserver in whom our souls are saved. The fact that Jesus is our good shepherd does not relieve us of suffering in this life. 
but it does help us to know that such suffering will be worth it in the end. Consider Revelation 7, verses 15 to 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Our journey as God's people isn't merely about our earthly lives. It's about our journey toward God, to to spending eternity with him. This is the whole journey to which Jesus prayed and continues to pray for our keeping. He said in John 17, 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. In Christ, we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. An inheritance that God is keeping for us. And it is an inheritance to which God is keeping us for. This is our eternal security, our living hope. Yet, In the here and now, we still have to walk by faith. And despite what may be happening around us, we can't lose heart. Instead, we need to claim God's promises, trusting that his power works through our faith. 1 Peter 1.7 I like how Dallas Willard illustrates this idea of eternal safety. In Matthew 8, 23 and following, the disciples and Jesus were on a boat out in the Sea of Galilee when a furious storm arose. Large waves swept over the boat, and the disciples in their panic woke up a sleeping Jesus. Lord, save us, they cried. We're going to drown. You know what Jesus said? Jesus replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Willard prompts us to further consider why Matthew wrote about this seemingly insignificant detail of Jesus sleeping. He says it's because Matthew wanted us to understand that given what he knew of the Father, Jesus was absolutely convinced that the universe was a perfectly safe place to be. Yes, the disciples had faith in Jesus. Well, most of the time anyway. But they didn't have the faith of Jesus. They didn't share in the conviction that they were safe in God's hands. They didn't share in the peace of Christ. Indeed, our own circumstances may overwhelm us. There may even be challenges beyond what we think we can bear. But this psalm tells us that we are not confronting those circumstances or bearing those challenges alone. Instead, the Lord is our refuge, our stronghold in times of trouble. And we are strengthened and upheld by the very hands of our creator God who will never leave nor forsake us. If you've committed your life to Jesus, then his help and protection go with you. It's his promise. And while evil may still cause you to struggle, suffer, or grieve, this psalm stands as a reminder that evil will never win. Because of Jesus, you can trust that God's watchful care will bring you peace. 
Eugene Peterson tells us that all the water in all the oceans cannot sink a ship unless it gets inside. Nor can all the trouble in the world harm us unless it gets within us. That's the promise of this psalm. God will keep you from all harm. He'll look after your soul. And none of the things that have happened to you or will happen to you have any power to get between you and the grace of God. Between you and God's purpose for you. So when times are troubling, lift your eyes to a different hill. The hill of Golgotha. To Calvary's cross where Jesus laid down his life for you. Jesus bore all that sin and evil of the world so that that evil would never, ever get inside of you. You would never win. And because of Jesus' sacrifice, nothing, nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're safe. We just have to walk by faith. Friends, fellow travelers, we're on quite a journey, aren't we? Yet it is by faith that we are helped, protected, and preserved by the God who loves us and who's working in us and through us and through each other. And so just as our psalmist left the temple strengthened and expressing his trust in God for what lies ahead, my prayer is that we'll leave church today eyes fixed on Jesus and knowing confidently from where our help comes. Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are our refuge, our strength, our ever-present help in times of trouble. So much of our world is in chaos, yet you remain steadfast and faithful and ever-vigilant in the care of your children. Indeed, help us to look away from the hills of the world to Calvary, to Christ who died for us. Help us to fix our eyes on him, for he alone is our help and our hope. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.